This morning's scripture passage is John chapter 20, 19 through 29. I'm reading from the New International Version. The Bible says, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him what they had, that they had seen the Lord, he declared, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. He'll bless us as we read and obey it. Amen. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Last week we celebrated the resurrection. We rejoiced over it. We sang about it. We prayed because of it. We preached on it. We laughed with it. And praise God, we ate after it. We did all that because the resurrection is an earth-shattering world-recreating explosion of joy. So this week, I want to ask, what is the resurrection all about? What does it do? What does it accomplish? How can it make us different today? Which are all the same question. What does the resurrection mean? Jesus Christ didn't come just saying, I was resurrected, past tense. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In almost the last words of Scripture in the 21st chapter of Revelation, Jesus, the risen Christ, says, I am making all things new. And last week in the message, we summed that up in part by saying that it is one of the deepest yearning of our hearts that all our brokenness and dreams and hopes and those of those we love can be put right, can be put back together, not just in imagination, but in life. So underneath all of our problems is a hope for healing and a hunger for completion and a thirst for recreation. And when Jesus Christ comes, saying, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying, I can do it. 
You want fulfillment, you want meaning, you want satisfaction, you want completeness. I can give it. That means, by implication, there is no legitimate disagreeing with the content of the resurrection. You might, for some strange reason, think it isn't true. But one thing you can't say, if you understand it, is that it's boring or it's irrelevant or it doesn't affect me or it's not important to me, that's taken away. The only consistent rejection to the content and promise of the gospel is that that's amazing and it's too good to be true. That's everything my heart ever wants to desire. And it is so perfect and it is so complete, it must be wrong. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. It means I was dead, but now I'm alive, and my life can become your life if you unite your life to mine. You'll die to your old self, and my new life and the resurrection power will come into you and make you new and make you whole and make you mine. That's the gospel. Now, our text this morning is a vignette of what Christ does when he comes back. Last week, we touched on a bit of this. We saw that he comes back, not with judgment or condemnation, even to those who had betrayed him in his hour of deepest need. No. Instead, he comes back with grace. He comes back after his resurrection with arms full of gifts. We have a custom at Christmas time of giving gifts to one another. I looked it up this week. I'd known it before, but I'd kind of forgotten. It's an emblem and a remembrance and a reiteration of the Magi bringing gifts to the Christ child. I want to suggest this year how much more appropriate gift giving would be at Easter than at Christmas. Because at Easter we commemorate the risen Christ rising from the dead and coming and giving gifts, great gifts, to his disciples. This morning I'd like to open the uh, treasure sack that Jesus comes back to and look in at some of the treasures as they are displayed to us in this particular vignette. There are others in other stories, but what is John 20? have to say, I want to suggest there are a whole slew of them, but basically two categories. One is a gift of faith, and the other I'm going to call consequential gifts that come as a consequence of the gift of faith. In our text this morning, Jesus comes. Well, just before our text, he comes to Mary, comes to Peter and John, then he comes to the disciples, He comes to Peter, he comes to Thomas, he comes. And in each case, he comes leading people to faith. Jesus is not a dead teacher like Muhammad. He's not a dead teacher like Buddha. He's not a dead teacher like every other founder of every other religion in the world. He's risen from the dead, he's alive, and in his life, he comes leading and teaching. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, and so is the risen Christ. He is alive now. And as a result of that, he can come and give you the gift of faith. 
That is the first and primary gift of the risen Christ. He comes and in so many words says it to Mary, believe. He says it to Thomas, stop doubting, believe. He says it to the disciples, he says it to Peter, it is the gift of faith. Now, is there anything we have to do to receive this great gift? Let me suggest in this story there are there are two things suggested, maybe more, I see two. In the first place, Christ gives faith to those he comes to and to those who go to him. Suppose people say, I can't go to him, I'm not pure enough, I'm not, my faith isn't strong enough, uh, it is not certain enough, it's not secure enough, and we miss the whole point that saving faith isn't about us, it's about Christ. Saving faith, if we're falling off a cliff, depends upon the strength of that limb or that twig or whatever it is, if we hold on to it, it's secure. It really doesn't matter whether or not our grip is strong enough to hold it or whether we're able just to crumple our body over it and be supported by our own weight. It's the strength of the support that counts. Sometimes, in a subtle way, we can turn our faith into a work. We did have a magnificent men's retreat. I believe it was the most powerful grouping of 20 people in the name of Christ, at least that I can imagine. On this weekend, or almost any weekend, it was an incredible time together. Leader after leader, testimony after testimony, one of our leaders shared that at a time in his life, he was asking the question of the good young ruler, the rich young ruler. Oh, what can I do to be saved? What can I do for you, Christ, to be forgiven? What can I do for you to find your pleasure? And in a serendipitous moment, by surprise, nothing that could have been conjured up by him, he was enveloped and surrounded by the presence of the risen Christ, which said to him, you are forgiven. You are embraced. You are loved. Get it? And it filled his heart and it filled his soul. And then came the question, the same question, but a different order. And it made the context completely different. Now, what are you going to do about it? In light of this great gift, what are you going to do? God gives the gift to those who go to him, not out of their own strength, not out of their own security, not out of their own wisdom, but they just go. So if you're wise enough or broken enough to say, Lord, I don't believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I'm, I'm helpless. Help me. That's the requisite for saving faith. That's, that's faith that saves. That receives the gift of faith from Jesus Christ himself. Then, first faith comes from going to Jesus, and second, it comes from looking at his wounds. Jesus is always showing people his wounds, his scars. He shows them to Mary. He shows them to Thomas. 
he shows them to his disciples, being a disciple of Jesus. I don't think we get it. I don't think we see him until we look at his wounds. Faith isn't faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. Faith isn't looking at our faith. It's looking at him. Faith is like a windshield. And when we look through it, we're safe. When we look at it and it cracks, we smash up. Faith is looking at the wounds of Christ and saying, My Lord and my God, I see that because of your wounds, I'm accepted. Your wounds are enough for me. That's faith. So first, faith comes when we go to Christ. And then secondly, faith comes when we, like Mel Gibson, say, I'm trying to heal my wounds with the wounds of Christ. What Jesus says is, look at my nail prints. They are evidence, they are my signature that I have given myself utterly for you. And the only response is, how can I give myself utterly for you? One of our retreat leaders said that Jesus asks one question in the text he was looking at, but he asks it three times. I thought that was great. That obviously made... One question, he he asks it three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I recognize no one ever asks that question of Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture. Do you love me? Because we have seen his wounds. Yes. I love you utterly. Now, that's the first great gift. Very briefly, I'm just going to give you the outline. That's my gift to you. <laughs> there are a whole slew of things that, that um, flow from that. I'm calling them consequential gifts. And let me just, maybe I'll just uh, do a little bit more than name them, but not much. One of the consequential gifts is the presence of the risen Christ. Christ gives us in faith as we attach ourselves to him, his presence, his reality, his person, his self. We talk a lot about the retreat, about we can know a lot about Christ, we can be with him, we can meditate him, but we need to know him. There's that haunting uh, interchange between Jesus and Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Dan McLennan led us in our takeaway, okay, how are we going to do this? How do we practice the presence of God? And we brainstormed, and maybe there's nothing novel, probably shouldn't be, but there were things important. We need to be still and know that he is God. We need to delight in him. We need to read his word. We need to, one of the things I've been haunted by, I think inappropriately, continually pray. I know I can continually pray. I think it means regularly. Throughout the day, refer your life to his. Lift things up. Now and now and now. and Walk with him. He's your companion. Pray with him. One of our leaders said, one of the saddest things in life is a religious person that doesn't pray. Be prayerful. Listen to his work. Practice purity. This wasn't said, but it should have been. This would have been my contribution. Meditate on him. 
His mercy, His wisdom, His grace, His love, His character, His nature, His person, His presence. Let it seep into your life and marinate you. Let it become big and clear and comforting and delightful enough that it fills you up. So the risen Christ gives the gift of his presence. Secondly, he gives the gifts of his purpose. We are to be a purposeful people. On my ordination certificate is the uh, phrase from this text. uh, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I looked up to illustrate this point in my Google research, uh, purposelessness. And the best quote I came up with, is a great quote, is uh, from Ted Kaczynski, the Unabombers. Surprisingly well-written, if rambling, piece, technological slavery. But I decided not to quote him from the pulpit. But it really was very illustrative. So here's the second best, which isn't bad. Here's a nameless blog. Uh, One writer says, why are we so bored so much of the time? Why are we so agitated and depressed? Why are we so often not happy with our lives, our work, ourselves? It's been interesting trying to make our way in a high unemployment economy. Everywhere I look, I have one friend who's going nuts trying to find a job and another friend who's going nuts because he hates his job. It's really hard to feel purposeful when you don't feel useful. We're unemployed and underemployed and everything in our culture tells us that our purpose is to buy stuff. And we work to buy stuff we don't like, and that we don't have time to use. We are a purposeless generation. The risen Christ gives us a whole purpose. After we met him face to face, after we practice his presence, we turn shoulder to shoulder with him to go out and share his great good news, his gospel self with a wounded and waiting world. So the consequential gifts are his presence and his purpose. He comes and gives his power. In this text, he breathes on us his spirit. That is a helpful and also a confusing image. But because it's the word of God, we have to concentrate on the helpfulness and clear away the confusion. It's confusing, I think, because the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. He's not the wind or the breath. But we do talk, don't we, about about taking a person in. About taking them in. And we, we mean by that to be captured by them, to be engaged by them, to be part of them. So it's a metaphor, but we practiced it. And I'm going to invite you to do that. Let's, let's breathe in. And as we do, think of breathing in the Spirit of God together. I think we could go to religious traditions. I think there's something probably calming and freeing about that physical act, and it should be. But as a metaphor, it can help us to take in the goodness of God, the presence of God. As you pray for Him during the day, let's 
Think about breathing the Spirit together. And hold it. Hold it right there. I, I haven't done this before, but as you hold it, I have told the story of Lord Ogilvy. No? Hold it. Lord Ogilvy, who in the Golden Gate Chapel said uh, that he had people do that, and then he said, are you holding it? He said, love of the living God should be more precious and desperate to you than the next breath you take. And then he stopped. And everybody in the room realized sooner or later, I'm going to have to take another breath. (laughs) Be desperate for him. You are the air I breathe. You can breathe. Some of you actually hadn't. Good for you. Uh, but we breathe him in. We, uh, we have his power. And the power of the Holy Spirit isn't just power to be inspired or enlightened or feel a little bit better or be helped a little bit. It is the power that brings death to life. It is the power through which Jesus stands before us. And the fourth, I promise just to do the outline, is peace. Boy, we could have, a, we could have the next semester See where my mind, academic mind. We we could spend the next six months on this. Uh, there's peace with God. There's peace with ourselves. There's peace with one another. What kind of peace is this? Probably all of that. Probably the peace we're purposed to be. But let's suggest just one peace. It is peace over death. Peace over our great fear. Peace over the great enemy, the worst thing that we could possibly imagine happening to us, that which would cut short all our hopes and dreams and promises and tomorrows has been defeated. We have peace over our greatest enemy. Well, two great gifts, the gift of faith and the consequential gift. Let's Some of us have been through celebrations where we celebrate Christmas in July. This year, I want to suggest that we celebrate Christmas in Easter. Because the risen Christ comes bearing gifts that promise to make the announcement of the resurrection story the story of your life. And will resurrect your very soul from death to life. Maybe so. Father, we are in awe of the reason for the season of the life you invite us to and the purpose that you invite us not only in support of the Gideons but in our own life, in our own ways to carry your word of life to others, to let it take root deeply in us by your grace and by your goodness to be part of your purpose to redeem your wounded world. May it be so in Jesus' name.